0: I think that the most common myths and misconceptions that I hear include that penicillin allergy lasts forever, and that once you're diagnosed with a penicillin allergy, it is yours from that day and carries forward forever and always holds true.
1: That is our expert discussant, Dr. Blumenthal. We'll let her introduce herself.
0: I'm Kim Blumenthal. I'm an allergist and researcher at Mass General Hospital an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School.
1: Today, we are discussing penicillin allergy, that pesky label that ruins the best planned antibiotic regimens. I'm Dr. Shreya Trivedi, an internist at BIDMC, and today I am joined by two very passionate souls.
2: Hi, I'm Dan Topan, an infectious disease attending at BIDMC.
1: Hi, I'm Anne-Marie Kumpfer,
3: I'm a hospitalist at the University of North Carolina.
1: Maybe before we get started, let's just make sure we're all on the same page. Deanne, can you break down for us, what is a penicillin?
2: Absolutely. So people usually just think about penicillin G, but there's so much more. It's those antibiotics that we use all the time that end in cylin. It's aminopenicillins. Like
3: ampicillin, amoxicillin.
2: The ones we use to treat staph.
3: Like nafcillin, oxicillin, and methicillin.
2: And we cannot forget about pipercillin and its trusty sidekick, tezobactam. (laughs)
1: So I guess the other thing to kind of give a heads up about this episode is that penicillins fall in a larger family of antibiotics called beta-lactams. And so you'll hear us say the word beta-lactams often. The other antibiotics to know that fall in that beta-lactam family are sulfosporins, carbapenems, and the poor, lonely monobactam, aztreonam.
2: Let's get started with the questions we'll be covering today. Make sure you test yourself by pausing after each of the five questions.
1: Remember, the more you test yourself, the deeper your learning gains.
2: Pearl one, overlabeling.
1: Why is there so much overlabeling of penicillin allergies?
2: Pearl two, alternative antibiotics.
1: What are the alternative antibiotics that often get used in penicillin allergic patients? And what are their potential harms?
2: Pearl three allergy history, and types of allergic reactions.
1: What are the four types of allergic reactions, and what are the important questions to ask to differentiate between those?
2: Pearl four, management.
1: Which patients should undergo a direct oral challenge, skin testing, or desensitization? And how are those performed?
2: Pearl five. Cross-reactivity.
1: When is it safe to use a cephalosporin or a carbapenem in a patient who is allergic to penicillin? All right, let's get started with a very common scenario. Say I'm seeing a patient in clinic, they're coming in for screening for a sexually transmitted infection, and I see a penicillin listed as an allergy.
2: How about this situation from the inpatient side? A patient is admitted from the ED with sepsis from pyelonephritis. You look back at her old urine cultures, and you notice some pretty resistant bugs. You decide is a good choice for her. So you go to order the cefepime in the EMR, when suddenly a big red pop-up screen comes out of nowhere. It says, alert, penicillin allergy.
3: And then you scream and run from the room. This scenario is the hospital's worst nightmare because there's nothing worse than finding that perfect antibiotic regimen only to encounter my nemesis, the penicillin allergy.
2: Dun, dun, dun.
1: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's kind of bizarre how often I see penicillin allergies in the chart, and it makes me curious. Why is it that so many patients have that penicillin allergy listed? So
0: right now in the United States, we have from 5 to 10% of all Americans who have a penicillin allergy label on their record. So they think that they're allergic to penicillin or it is documented somewhere that they are allergic to penicillin. And of all of those patients, when we evaluate them, whether we're evaluating them in the clinic or in the hospital, somewhere around 90 to 95% of them are not allergic. So they
1: don't have an immediate penicillin allergy at all. Wow, that label is wrong 90 to 95% of the time. So we dug into this more and we actually found four big reasons why patients are unnecessarily labeled with that. The one that was the most eye opening for me was learning that penicillin allergies actually fade over time.
0: I tell patients that in a 10-year period, 80% of them are no longer allergic. So that way they realize that their penicillin allergy history, which was likely more than 10 years ago, that there's more an 8 in 10 chance that they're not actually allergic.
1: Okay, so the takeaway for me is that when I hear a patient who said, oh, I had hives years ago, I think I'll feel a little bit reassured that their immune system probably has an 80% chance or so that it's chilled out by now. Yeah, not only do allergies fade with time, but
3: the second big reason is that a lot of allergies weren't actually allergies to begin with.
2: That actually happened to me when I was a kid. I had this viral infection, unfortunately I was given amoxicillin, and I got a rash. And of course, I was told that I had a penicillin allergy.
1: Ugh, that's crazy because in your situation, Dan, is it that you had this rash because of the viral infection that you had, like a viral exanthem? Or was it the penicillin and you had a penicillin allergy? Kind of reminds me of that old egg and chicken scenario. What came first? What actually caused it?
3: Would you say the decision to give antibiotics was a rash decision? <laughs> Sorry, uh. couldn't help myself. <laughs> This is interesting because I was reading a study about kids who had a delayed urticarial rash or maculopapular rash while on beta-lactam antibiotics and then were re-challenged. I was surprised to find that 93% did not get a rash when given penicillins again. It was probably that pesky virus causing the rash all along.
2: Well, I guess I was part of the 93% then.
3: (laughs) Always getting that eh? (laughs) A. So
2: the third big reason for mislabeling, which I see all the time, are when side effects like headache or diarrhea are listed under the allergy label. And of course, those things are really uncomfortable, but diarrhea is an adverse effect and not an allergy.
3: Yeah, completely agree. Let's continue with that myth busting with our last myth about penicillin allergy that we often run into.
0: Another one is that it runs in families. I get patients telling me all the time that their whole family has penicillin allergy and that's why they avoided it. And I think that that's problematic and just really not true. We just don't really think that there's a genetic basis that we've identified.
1: Preach. Okay, let's recap Pearl One. So it seems like 10% of the population or so thinks that they are allergic to penicillin, but less than 10% of those people with the label are actually allergic. And the reason for overlabeling includes one, most people don't know that penicillin allergies actually fade over time. Two, often viral rashes get confused with drug allergies. Three, adverse effects often get mislabeled as an allergy. And lastly, there's a misconception that penicillin allergies are hereditary. Okay, okay, got it. Penicillin allergies
3: are way overdocumented. And I actually see a lot of patients in the hospital with penicillin allergy who instead get things like vancomycin or clindamycin or fluoroquinolones or even poor loathly astrianam.
0: If you need antibiotics a lot and you're not given the beta-lactam antibiotics, which the penicillins are part of, then you have a higher likelihood of developing MRSA
1: and C. diff. MRSA and C. diff, Mm, definitely things I try to avoid. Dan, let me pitch it to you. As the ID expert in the room, what do you think of these
2: alternative antibiotics? I have lots of thoughts.
1: Okay, okay, just a warning. Let's
3: prepare for a little bit of antibiotic bashing.
2: So let's start with the fluoroquinolones. I have a love-hate relationship with the quinolones. Their high bioavailability makes them really useful in certain situations, but the side effects. Oh man, so many side effects. (laughs)
1: Lay it on us, Dan.
2: (laughs) So, you've probably heard about the tendonitis and QTC prolongation, but the fluoroquinolones can also cause confusion, raise your risk of aortic aneurysms, and believe it or not, they can increase your risk of MRSA colonization.
1: Quinolones actually increase your risk of MRSA? Ah, no buenos.
3: Besides that, I've been burned by quinolone resistance. I actually remember a time when I had a patient with pyelonephritis who had a penicillin allergy documented, and so was instead given fluoroquinolones. The patient ended up decompensating, and it turns out the sensitivities came back, and the E. coli was resistant to the fluoroquinolone.
1: Ah, I wonder what would have happened to your patient had they just gotten that beta-lactam up front.
2: And just as a general rule of thumb, in patients with a history of resistant gram negative infections, reaching for a broad spectrum beta lactam like cefepime or piptazo will generally get you better coverage than a quinolone.
1: Mm, Thank you, ID consult. Okay, what about Clinda? Clinda often gets thrown on patients who carry this penicillin allergy.
2: That's also very C. diffogenic.
1: And also
3: gets a ding with resistance. There's rising strap-immersive resistance to Clindamycin.
2: And Clinda is not very patient-friendly with the frequent dosing and those GI side effects.
1: Oof, I uh, definitely know firsthand the GI side effects of Clinda. Oh, Shreya, I am so sorry. <laughs> All right. So moving on to our next antibiotic on the chopping block, what about vank? Dan, what are your thoughts about people getting VANC instead of a beta-lactam?
2: So VANC has its downfalls too. When you're seeing a patient with an MSSA bloodstream infection, vanc actually has worse outcomes than anti-staph beta-lactams like nafcillin or cefazolin. And for you perioperative medicine fanatics out there, vancomycin prophylaxis in the OR can actually lead to more surgical site infections if it's used instead of cefazolin.
3: And don't forget about the risk of selecting for vancomycin-resistant enterococcus. And that potential for nephrotoxicity.
1: All right, moving on to our last but not least alternative antibiotic that we often see is s Guys, I can't remember how many times I've been to a rapid response for a decompensating patient and they have a penicillin allergy. And sure enough, they get vanc, metronidazole, and s
2: Shreya, I was probably at that rapid response with you. And this happens all the time. Patients with penicillin allergy are actually 18 times more likely to get s m And that's unfortunate because s 3 m doesn't provide nearly as good gram-negative coverage as other beta-lactams. It also has no gram-positive coverage. It is not my favorite.
3: Sorry, s nm I do don't think you're making it on to Dan's fantasy antibiotic draft.
2: Absolutely not. <laughs> so to summarize our rundown of antibiotic alternatives, and this is exactly what I tell my patients who have penicillin allergies... These alternative antibiotics often have more side effects and they may not be as good at treating your infection.
3: This is great, but honestly, in real life, when I'm 45 minutes into an admission interview, my pager is going crazy. And I sometimes just quickly run through the allergy section like, hey, the chart says you're allergic to penicillin, right? Okay, moving on.
0: When I was a med student and I was taught how to take an allergy history, it went something like, so you're allergic to penicillin, I see here in the chart, and the patient would say yes, and you would just write that down. And that the allergy history is so much more than that. It is like the history of present illness we do for everything else. It involves the timing and the symptoms and what happened, and that the history can be used to help decide how to prescribe antibiotics to that patient in front of you.
1: So what I found helpful in taking a good allergy history is understanding something that I haven't thought about since med school, which is the pathophys behind the 4 and Jalen-Coombs hypersensitivity reactions. I think what's helpful is when we tailor the questions to hone in on which one of those four hypersensitivity reactions it could be, it really then helps us with our management in the future, which we'll be talking about later in the episode. So-
0: I guess I'll start as an allergist with my favorite types of reactions, which are the type that are mediated by IgE, which is um, our allergy antibody. And those are reactions that are typically immediate and onset.
2: Often within one hour of the first dose of an antibiotic course, that IgE is already formed and it's just hanging out on the surface of mast cells. Then the allergen comes along and boom, histamine gets shot out like a cannon.
0: Those are the ones that have symptoms like hives or urticaria, angioedema, wheezing, anaphylaxis, and those are the reactions that we need to treat with, first, if it's severe epinephrine, 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 epinephrine,
3: epinephrine. And that fast onset of IgE-mated reactions is why it's so important to ask about the timing of the symptoms.
0: How many days into taking a course did the symptoms occur? Was it the first day, the second day, the third day, a week later, a month later? All of that is very important because it gives you a hint at maybe what kind of reaction might have occurred.
1: But what if they don't remember how soon after the antibiotic their symptoms started? If it was within an hour or if it was longer?
0: asking about treatment might help you with what the patient looked like to a clinician. If the patient was just told, oh, stop that antibiotic and you don't need to see anybody and you don't need to take any medication to treat yourself, then that situation is a low risk situation. If the patient was told, okay, you need to come to the emergency room or give yourself epinephrine or come to a PCP office because that rash needs to be checked out, you get a sense for a more severe history of penicillin allergy.
1: Okay. And then the last bit of questioning, getting at that type 1 I immediate reaction is actually a throwback from Pearl One, the teaching point that IgE allergies actually fade over time.
0: So when did this occur in your life? Was it two weeks ago? Was it a year ago? Was it 10 years ago? Was it in childhood? Those, All of those clues about timing are really important. Okay,
3: now that we have type 1 down, I think we should mix it up a little bit and talk about type 4 hypersensitivity reactions next, because both these type of reactions are very common and both can cause rashes.
2: Unlike the speedy type 1 hypersensitivity reactions, type 4 reactions are delayed, usually starting at least 72 hours after the first dose and sometimes weeks into the course of a drug.
1: Hmm, why do type 4 reactions take so darn long?
2: Well, these reactions are mediated by T-cells, and it takes those T-cells a little while to activate and to multiply before anyone notices symptoms.
3: Yeah, those T-cells take time to age, like fine wine.
2: Exactly. In comparison to type 1, which is more like a shot of cheap tequila. It's quick, and the aftermath is never good.
1: Ugh. Hmm. And just like the countless number of fine wines out there, type 4 hypersensitivity reactions come in all shapes, sizes, and for allergies, different severities.
0: The problem with type 4 is that there's a huge spectrum. So the, the benign maculopapular rash that you see every day on the hospital ward from the patient that's on four antibiotics and just developed a rash and you're monitoring maybe a little bit. That rash is a type four hypersensitivity reaction, but also Stevens-Johnson syndrome is considered a type four hypersensitivity reaction.
2: The thing I always emphasize about taking allergy histories is that once we narrow it down to a type four delayed reaction, we have to figure out if it's a mild or a severe type four reaction because that has major implications for management. I
0: think that some of these things we can really get at even when we're talking about things that happened years and years ago. So asking about skin peeling is important and we don't mean the fine like skin desquamation that might happen, you know, after a drug rash that's like very common. We mean like detachment, like did your skin significantly peel? Uh, mucosal involvement, did did was was there a potential problems with your eyes or mouth?
2: Dr. Blumenthal is trying to rule out a history of severe type 4 hypersensitivity, like SJS, where we would never want to re-challenge the patient with the beta-lactam. What other questions
3: should we be asking the patient?
0: Were there potentially organ involvement? Did anybody say that you needed to get blood work and they were worried about your livers or your kidneys in the past?
2: And that last line of questioning on liver and kidney involvement gets at another famous type 4 hypersensitivity reaction, DRESS also known as drug reaction with eosinophilia and systemic symptoms.
3: And if someone had DRESS, you definitely don't want to re-challenge them with the beta-lactam. You don't want DRESS twice, or even once.
1: Okay, so quick recap. There are two major types of hypersensitivity reactions that can cause a rash. Type 1 which is IgE-mediated, happens really quickly and can cause hives to anaphylaxis if you're unlucky, and then type 4, which is T-cell mediated, causing a delayed rash that can range from a mild maculopapular rash to a severe life-threatening reaction. Okay, uh, Dan, why don't you bring it home for us?
2: Yeah, so the final piece of game-changing history is to figure out what antibiotics they've tolerated since their initial reaction.
0: The final thing is exposure since. So I joke, but I don't joke, but as an allergist, our favorite consults or are for history of penicillin allergy, but the patient takes amoxicillin at the dentist. So consult done, we're all set. You tolerate a penicillin. You actually tolerated an amino penicillin, which we could get to, which means you basically tolerate almost every
3: penicillin. Yeah. Nothing is more satisfying than finding out that they tolerated a course of penicillin and hitting that delete button on the penicillin allergy label. One thing that I found is you can actually use the chart search function and look and see if they've tolerated a penicillin.
1: Ah, that's genius. I've got to start using that search function more because so many people don't remember the names of their prior antibiotics.
3: Yeah, it's actually pretty amazing how many patients have tolerated penicillins without even knowing it.
2: anne you are making your pharmacist proud by deleting it from the allergy list. And with that, let's summarize Pearl 4. The key to taking a good allergy history is determining the timing and the specific symptoms during their initial reaction. This will help you figure out what type of hypersensitivity reaction they had. And then my favorite thing to do is to check if they've safely tolerated penicillin since that initial reaction without realizing it.
1: Just a quick word from our sponsor. We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest, between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With Factors, that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals right to your door, ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from Calorie Smart to Protein Plus to Keto. And don't forget, they have 60-plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites so you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital's cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouth-watering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With Factor, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash 50 Use the code coream50 to get 50% off. That's the code coream50 at factormeals.com slash 50 So we know that 10% of people have a penicillin allergy documented, but 90% of those people actually don't have an allergy. But then how do we figure out who are those people that have a true allergy? I wish that more people
3: knew that there was a test for true IgE-mediated penicillin allergy. Okay, just to make things clear, from here on out when we're talking about testing, which is challenging patients with a penicillin again. We're not talking about those patients who've had a severe skin reaction in the past, like SJS or DRESS. In those situations, you should stay away from beta-lactams like their jalapeno juice near the eyes.
2: (laughs) So to hammer that point home, we're talking about patients with a history of type 1 hypersensitivity reaction, a mild type 4 reaction, or an unclear reaction.
3: First, let's talk about those folks with a very low-risk penicillin allergy. Something like itching, something like GI upset,
0: something like family history, something like remote unknown allergy. Those are sort of four big categories that would chop a lot of penicillin allergy out. And of
3: those, GI upset and family history are so low-risk that you don't even need to challenge. Just go ahead and do my favorite thing and delete that allergy label. <laughs> delete,
1: delete, delete. Yes. Nice. Uh, you are an inspiration, Anne-Marie. What about the other patients who are low risk? You know, those that have a mild rash or some distant history with some details they don't remember.
0: Honestly, would you could give a do- just dose of amoxicillin under observation. As long as you know how to treat anaphylaxis and have an anaphylaxis kit, and that sounds like a very good beneficial thing to offer.
1: AKA, that is what we call a direct oral challenge.
2: In a perfect world, a direct oral challenge can be done in the PCP's office. In the real world, if you don't have the infrastructure to give the dose and then watch them for an hour, a referral to allergy is your next best move.
1: What about managing those patients who aren't so low risk? You know, say they give a really good history for an immediate type one allergic reaction. Say they give a good story for legit hives or even anaphylaxis. You definitely want to be a bit more careful in these patients,
3: but then we also know that many type 1 reactions will fade with time.
1: That's like such a nice reassuring pearl to just bring up for some spaced repetition. Um, And it'd be nice if there was a way we can tell if those patients are still allergic even years after.
0: We can test for this and that um, it's a safe test and we should be doing it so much more than we're doing it now.
3: Dr. Blumenthal is talking about penicillin skin testing. Just a quick rundown. Skin testing is where we use the major penicillin metabolite and it's injected under the skin with histamine and saline controls. If there's no reaction, then you're good to go and onto the oral challenge with amoxicillin. I like to
0: tell patients that the skin test gets us 95% way there. And so it's done to increase safety and to standardize the evaluation but that really you can still react after a negative skin test. And so I'm going to give you a drink of amoxicillin and watch you for an hour to make sure that you're okay. Um, And so that gets you sort of 100%
2: the way there. To hammer that point home, for patients who you are a little nervous about going straight to the oral challenge, the skin test is going to help you feel more confident. If the skin test is negative, they are good to go for a dose of amoxicillin. Yeah. And the two
1: things that really won me over about the skin testing is one, it's safe in patients with a history of anaphylaxis. So that's a win. And then the second win is that it's actually covered by most insurances.
2: And just a plug, if your hospital has the capacity, inpatient skin testing has been associated with less vanc and quinolone use and actually decreases costs in the long run. That will delight your hospital administrators.
1: Oh, we're making everyone happy. Pharmacists, hospital administrators, ID docs. Uh, but yeah, I think that is something going to change in my practice. You know, I think if I'm seeing a patient in clinic who's coming in for something unrelated and has a penicillin allergy that they're carrying around, I think I'll just be proactive and refer them to the allergy clinic. You know, sadly, at some point, they're probably going to need an antibiotic. And uh, why not keep our options broad here, right? It's good to have options. <laughs>
3: Options are good, especially in the hospital cafeteria on the weekend. But what about the situation when you're in the hospital and you don't have access to an allergist or can't perform skin testing? Are we just stuck using fluoroquinolones and estrianam then?
2: Absolutely not. So in our hospital, if someone comes in with an infection but has an IgE-mediated penicillin allergy history, we will often give a cephalosporin using something called a graded challenge.
1: Wait a minute. Back up, what's a greater challenge?
2: Okay, so a greater challenge is when you give a small initial dose, like 10% of the medication. Some people call that a test dose. Then you observe the patient for about an hour.
1: Ah, nice. And then why are we giving a test dose?
2: So the reason why we give a test dose is if the patient does have a reaction, it should lead to a more mild reaction than with a full dose. So if they tolerate the test dose well, you can go ahead and give the rest of that full dose while still watching them closely.
1: Okay. And then why do we do this graded challenge with a cephalosporin if they have an allergy to a penicillin?
2: Well, we'll talk a little bit more about cross-reactivity between penicillins and cephalosporins in the next pearl, but spoiler alert, there's a lot less cross-reactivity than you'd think.
1: (laughs) Nice. Okay. So- Why don't we talk about the patients then that are super high risk? You know, they actually have a positive penicillin skin test or a recent anaphylaxis reaction, and they really need a penicillin.
3: Yeah, this actually comes up from time to time. Say you have a patient with neurosyphilis or someone growing some pretty resistant bacteria that only respond to a few antibiotics. If you're anaphylaxed today
0: to penicillin, but you need penicillin today, that would be fine. I could actually just give it to you by desensitization protocol. Now, desensitization protocol is somewhere between six and 13 steps.
2: Desensitization is a really sneaky tactic where you give such a small amount of penicillin that those IgE antibodies don't even notice. You slowly give more and more until a normal dose is tolerated. It's like slowly sneaking more and more spinach into your kid's food.
1: (laughs) I do love tricking my child and the immune system, but we should mention up front that the desensitization is often done in the ICU under close monitoring, so it's quite resource intensive.
3: Another thing about desensitization is if you don't use it, you'll lose it, which means tolerance only lasts as long as there's constant exposure to the med. So if someone needs penicillin again in the future, you have to go through the whole desensitization process again.
1: Yeah, uh, quite resource intensive. All right, so let's summarize. Uh, I just want to make sure I'm getting this all right. So basically, when I have a patient who is low risk for reported allergy, say they had skin etching without a rash or some distant unknown history that didn't need treatment, I think what I'm taking away is that I should just go ahead and give a dose of amoxicillin and observe them for an hour.
2: Exactly. And if the allergy history is more concerning for a legitimate type 1 IgE-mediated reaction, if it's available, you can use skin testing followed by an oral challenge. If skin testing isn't available or isn't practical and you need an antibiotic right away, you can do a graded challenge with a cephalosporin. If they had a recent IgE reaction or a positive skin test and they absolutely need a penicillin right now and don't have an option for a cephalosporin, that's when you would do desensitization.
3: I'm so glad we covered that. That's super high yield. But what about that patient with pyelonephritis with some resistant bugs and you really want to use that cephalosporin, but then boom, penicillin allergy.
2: Yes, there is a lot to unpack here. But just before we get started, as a reminder, penicillins and cephalosporins are like cousins that are part of a bigger family called beta-lactams. And that is simply because both classes have that beta-lactam ring.
1: Ah, nice. All right, so does an allergy to one beta-lactam ring antibiotic mean an allergy to all beta-lactam ring antibiotics?
0: There's never been a randomized controlled trial of penicillin-documented, like proven penicillin-allergic patients and their tolerance of every single cephalosporin. What we instead have are a bunch of people who might have reported a penicillin allergy in the past, some patients who had confirmed penicillin allergy, and we sort of document whether they have objective signs or symptoms with another cephalosporin or carbapenem. And so with that caveat, I'd say we know that there's probably some cross-reactivity between beta-lactam antibiotics because they all have beta-lactam rings, but the cross-reactivity risk is maybe not as high as it was ever thought to be. And in our textbooks, that 8% FDA label was rounded like colloquially to 10%. Really, the risk is probably somewhere in the 2 to 3% cross-reactivity. And the cross-reactivity is likely penicillin to cephalosporins
3: that look alike. 3%? I definitely feel lied to.
1: But wait a minute. What did Dr. Blumenthal mean when she was saying that cross-reactivity is higher when a penicillin and cephalosporins look alike? Don't they all share that beta-lactam ring? Is she saying that maybe some cephalosporins look a little bit more similar to penicillins than other cephalosporins?
3: I have some bad news for you. The answer involves organic
0: chemistry. So back to organic chemistry, I never knew I'd have to think about organic chemistry again, but we have a beta-lactam ring and then we have two important side chains. And one side chain might be more important than the other. And people say that the R1 side chain is more important than the R2 side chain. So it turns out the aminocephalosporins, these are things like cephalexin and cephalochlor, they have the same R1 side chain or similar to like amino penicillins, the ampicillins and amoxicillin. So it's possible that that cross-reactivity is just because they have that same fun side chain rather than the beta-lactam ring.
1: Dan, I'm curious, how do you apply this to your practice when you get consulted for a patient with a penicillin allergy?
2: So when I see someone with a known allergy to an amino penicillin, like ampicillin or amoxicillin, I think twice about giving them an oral first-generation cephalosporin Like cephalexin or cefadroxil, because I know that they have similar side chains.
1: Hmm. Okay. So to make things just simplified, can I think about it this way? Can I just say, okay, late generation cephalosporins like ceftriaxone or cefepime are safer in patients with penicillin allergy, and just avoid those early generation cephalosporins.
2: So you're on the right track, Shreya. But there's one first generation cephalosporin where cross reactivity is way less likely. And that's my favorite cephalosporin, cefazolin. Its side chain doesn't look anything like any of the other penicillins or cephalosporins, so the risk of cross-reactivity is much lower. It's really a unique and beautiful snowflake.
1: Oh, I
3: hear all the orthopedic surgeons rejoicing.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's like, you get cephazolin, you get cephazolin, you get cefazolin. You get cefazolin. <laughs> okay, but even though the risk of cross-reactivity is lower, when you're giving a cephalosporin
3: to someone with a penicillin allergy, and this is especially true if it's a history of a high-risk allergy like anaphylaxis, this should be done in an observed setting, at least until there's more studies on the topic. This is a great time to use that graded challenge we talked about.
1: But guys, what about carbapenems? They're also part of that beta-lactam family. Can those be given safely in a patient with a penicillin allergy? I generally don't
0: worry about the carbapenems and penicillin allergy. Maybe if you had anaphylaxis today and you needed a carbapenem tomorrow, I would give it to you by like a graded challenge or a test dose where I could observe you.
1: Um but I'd still give it to you. Yeah, there's even less data supporting cross-reactivity between penicillins and carbapenems. It seems like they're like far, far distant cousins.
2: All right, it sounds like a good time for a recap.
1: The cross reactivity between penicillins and cephalosporins is a lot lower than 10% that we learned about in med school. That cross reactivity is actually thought to be due to the side chain rather than the beta lactam ring. And so, medications with similar side chains like cephalexin and amoxicillin are more likely to have some kind of cross reaction, even though that the net cells is pretty low late-generation cephalosporins and carbapenems are usually safe when we give them in an observed setting.
2: And that's even in the setting of prior anaphylaxis.
1: And before wrapping up,
3: we have one last word from Dr. Blumenthal. I think my favorite thing to just
0: my plea is that the allergy list or allergy module of the electronic health record is a communication tool. It's just not a list of drugs. It's a communication tool to future providers forever that lives with the patient from the time that you're entering something and probably until their death. And so, therefore, everything that you can add, if you're seeing a reaction or you're making clinical judgments, anything you can add into that part of the allergy list is important for that patient's future clinical care for life. No one's going to read the long progress note from day 13 of a 40-day hospitalization, but everyone is going to see that allergy list. And so over-document there, be specific. You can say whatever you want. I think it's within a 200-character limit. It's like a tweet. (laughs) You can say whatever you want in the electronic uh, health record allergy list, and you should think of it as you're communicating to future clinical providers.
3: I'm a little hurt that no one's reading my day 13 progress note. Uh, there's some great stuff in there.
1: <laughs> that day 13 progress note, pain is real.
2: Don't worry, Amory. As an ID doc, I'm definitely reading that day 13 progress note. <laughs>
4: All right. And with that, we will leave it to Dr. Netta Freya. My name is Netta Freja. I am a primary care internist in Baltimore, Maryland. I'm on faculty at the University of Maryland School of Medicine, and I am the editor and host of the Primary Care Reviews and Perspectives podcast
1: and Dr. Freha will be doing the recap for the episode.
4: Pearl one, there are many penicillin allergy myths. Most importantly, 90 to 95% of people who have a penicillin allergy label are not actually allergic to penicillin. And I think if we think for a moment about if there were any other diagnosis or label where if we knew that every time we saw it on a patient's record, we knew that 95% of the time the time. it was false, it would really blow our minds, and we should have that same level of appreciation for this particular statistic. And there are a couple of reasons for it that are good to keep in mind. One is that in childhood, kids will have a rash at the drop of a hat, and they may have a viral exanthem that gets mislabeled as a penicillin allergy, and then that label sticks around in their chart for decades to come. Uh, There is a misconception in a lot of our patients that if a family member had penicillin allergy, that means that they must too. And this also is inaccurate. And then third, and this particular little pearl just blows my mind every time, even true penicillin allergy fades over the years. So up to 80% of people with a true IgE-mediated penicillin allergy will actually lose this allergic response after 10 years. This is incredibly empowering as we think about how to delabel our patients. This 95% statistic can have real harm attached to it. There are harms associated with this over-labeling of a penicillin allergy. Patients who have this reported allergy will receive more second-line antibiotics that can really deviate from standard of care depending on the infection that we're talking about. They receive more fluoroquinolones, more clindamycin, more vancomycin, more astrianam, all of which have their own adverse effects. Patients who have a reported penicillin allergy have higher rates of nosocomial infections like MRSA, VRE, and C. diff. They have higher risk of surgical site infections. They have longer hospital stays, and they incur increased health care costs. Pearl three. By getting a good allergy history we can figure out what type of allergic reaction the patient might have had and therefore risk stratify them so that we can manage them better. By asking a few simple questions, we can get to what type of reaction they had. And these questions are things like, when did the reaction occur? What were the symptoms, if the patient even remembers? If there was a rash, was there desquamation? Did it involve the mucosal membranes? Was there blistering? Did the person need special medications like steroids or epinephrine? Did they need to be in the hospital? And then really critically, have they been able to tolerate penicillin since? And here I'll get really specific. I will ask, have you had amoxicillin in the past 10 years? Have you had Augmentin in the past 10 years? I'll use brand names because that may jog their memory, and they may tell me that they've actually been able to tolerate the medicine fine. But by asking these questions, we can get to what kind of reaction they might have had, which will help us with management. Pearl four. When it comes to management, practice improvement is easy, and it is absolutely within reach for all of us. If our patient is low risk, and so this is, for example, if they had an unknown reaction more than 10 years ago, or if they had pruritus but without a rash, Then it is safe to give these low-risk patients a direct oral challenge, and this is giving them 250 to 500 milligrams of amoxicillin and observing them for an hour. And then if they don't respond or react to that oral challenge, we're done. We have been able to identify that they're not allergic. In more medium or moderate-risk scenarios, so these are patients with a history of an IgE-mediated reaction in the past, maybe hives, maybe bronchospasm, maybe distant anaphylaxis, then these are the right patients who should receive skin testing with a series of intradermal injections of penicillin metabolites, and then if that's negative, we can follow that up with the same oral challenge. Together, these two tests have a negative predictive value of 95 to 98 percent, so if the person has a negative skin test and a negative oral challenge, we can de-label them, YZ date. We want to communicate this result with the patient's primary care clinician and any other clinicians that are really involved in their care. And so importantly, we want to celebrate this with the patient themselves. We want to tell them, congratulations, you are not Allergic to penicillin. If anyone asks you in the future, are you allergic to penicillin? You will say no, because so often the patient doesn't understand what we've just done, and then they perpetuate the myth themselves, which is just such a shame. Pearl five Is it safe to use cephalosporins or carbapenems in pen allergic patients? And the answer is very often yes. We often learn that the cross-reactivity between penicillin allergy and cephalosporins is around 10%, and that's actually a myth. It's another myth. It's based on old studies uh, with older cephalosporins and small study numbers. Uh, in reality, the cross-reactivity is really more like 2% to 3%, and it's mediated by the R1 side chain of the particular drug. So if it's similar to a penicillin, like in, for example, cephalexin, which is nearly identical in its side chain to a then we can be a little bit more cautious but if it's a unique side chain like for example in cefazolin then we can feel really empowered to use that cephalosporin and not to worry and similarly carbapenems are safe to give in patients with either that type 1 or a very mild type 4 reaction
1: and that is a wrap for today's episode if you found this episode helpful please share it with your team your colleagues Give it a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. It really does help people find us. And if you want to add your own tips, share your own experiences, please tweet us, leave us a comment uh, on our website, our Instagram, or Facebook. Thank you so, so much to Dr. Kyura Rashid for peer reviewing this episode. Thank you to Max Head for the audio editing, to Kathy Sassan for the accompanying graphics. And as always, we'd love to hear feedback. So email us at hello at coreimpodcast.com. Opinions are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions.